And may God continue his blessing with the reading of his word from Amos, chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though, you're cho- though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Pretty powerful texts. There's a new game show out this season. With all writer's strike, reality TV has uh, become very important. And this one is uh, like watching car crashes in slow motion. It's just fascinating. It's called the... Huh? No, the moment of the moment of truth. Any moment of truth viewers out there yet? Man, I watch too much TV. <laughs> you know, after all these years, I'm realizing that I'm the one who watches too much TV. You, you, I ask you questions. No, I haven't seen it. No, didn't go. No, I haven't done it. Must be me. Do you read anything? Okay, email me a list of what you read, email me a list of what you watch and what you like, because my sermon illustrations are just falling flatter than flat lately. I mean, you know, I can't, I, I can't win. Do you golf? Do you play tennis? Ski? I know some people ski. Uh, just, you know, tell me what you do besides I eat, I drink, I sleep, something besides that. My hobby is weeding the garden. No, I need... I need to kind of connect, I need, reconnect. I, I'm, I'm losing my, uh, my sense of where you're at somehow. You know, let me know. Email me. It's, it's right there in the bulletin. Tell me what you read and what you do because, man, moment of truth. Well, let me tell you about it anyway. You get, I think, it's eight questions the first go-around in order to win $10,000. And the questions are brutal. Okay, they're brutal. And then the next round, you get some six questions or something for $25,000. And then it goes down to four or five for $100,000. I think it's four. And three for 200000 right on up to a million dollars. Or 500000 or something. Anyway, you can make a lot of money for just telling the truth. Only you see normal people telling the truth about their lives and it's like the skeleton closet is opened and all of the worst pieces of them become visible. Now, I have this sneaking suspicion that if any of us were on the show, the outcome wouldn't be much different. Sinners are sinners whether they're in church or out of church. Closets tend to be full of bones one way or the other. Am I right? But it reminded me of Judgment Day (laughs) watching the show. I mean, 
they get a gal who does beauty pageants and they'll ask her if she thinks she's prettier than her sister and her sister's standing right there. That's the kind of question. They talk to a guy who looks like he might have a toupee and say, are you a member of the men's hair club? And on national television, he has to say, yes, you know, I can swim if I go like this. <laughs> it's brutal. It's brutal. Very personal, the questions get. But the contestants are all connected to a lie detector, and they've taken a test already with 50-some very personal questions up to that point, developing, starting from the real easy ones like, what's your name, and where were you born, where were you born, and what are your parents' names, and what's your birthday, and the sort of baseline questions that establish a pattern of truth, and then they get progressively more difficult. And so all the contestants have been screened this way, and they have these bank of questions they've been asked, and now they're coming on TV, and they do research to find out, like, did you cheat on a college exam any time? You know, they'll find somebody who knew you cheated when they asked that, you know. Well, why do I go on about this? Well, like I said, it's like watching a car wreck in slow motion. It's just fascinating in a really kind of twisted sort of way. But I wonder if we were put into a lie detector test situation and put on national television and asked about our attitudes, fundamental attitudes, deep down, what would come out? I wonder what we would learn about our preconceptions of things. I wonder what we might learn about our prejudices. I wonder what we might learn under those circumstances of truth or not truth about our attitudes politically today. Now I'm walking on dangerous waters in terms of what motivates our view of particular things. Because I suspect that most of us, to one degree or another, are motivated by economics. Particularly how a particular party or bill or idea will affect our fiscal year. I suspect that that is a very big part of the political process for many of us. And yet, biblically speaking, the prophetic word is not concerned with that the prophetic word is that the reign of God is here and that we live it out in righteousness loving mercy and doing justly and walking humbly with our God that is the prophetic word okay, you didn't have to say amen to the sermon illustration but that is the scripture and I wonder if we're in harmony with that in the way that we live. Well, I'm not going to spend all of my time talking about justice this morning, but the two passages we read drive at something very important, particularly the Amos 5 passage. God is speaking and he says, Look, I, I, Forget it. I hate your assemblies. I'm tired of your sacrifices. The smell of them stinks. Even if you offer a really nice sacrifice, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in your atonement for your sin. What I'm interested in is right doing and justice. That's what I'm interested in. 
Now, does this take away from the grace of our God? Not at all. Does this mean that Jesus' sacrifice for our sins is somehow less? No, not at all. Does this mean that a repentant sinner has to face a God who says, I'm not interested in forgiving you, I'm just interested in right doing? No. Don't distort the passage to mean those things. What it means is that when the people called by God repeatedly fall into patterns that ignore the mandate, the prophetic mandate, to live justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. When we fail to exercise mercy, and worse, we are part of the carriage of unjust, uh, the miscarriage of justice. When we're part of the miscarriage of justice. Or when we support systems that are inherently unjust. We fail to receive the full blessing of God. Do you believe that? I'm not, I'm not sure we do. I hope we do. I hope I can help you get there today. I think that's really important. Last week I talked about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King a little bit because a week ago Monday was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And February is Black History Month. And uh, we talked a little bit. I read part of his speech, the I Have a Dream speech, and we just talked a little bit about this thing of justice. But I want to go today into a different place. I want to speak about hearing the prophetic voice. Because I think if we can hear it in today's vernacular, it's key to fulfilling the imperative of Amos. Let's read it again. Amos 5. Hosea Joel Amos. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Now what is God saying? Everything we do to participate in worship our presence, our tithes and our offerings, our gifts of time and talent, our willingness to make a joyful noise, whether it's in the orchestra or the congregation or leading, our songs of praise, our hymns of praise. I think in the 80s anyway, the debate was, can you have a drum on the stage in church? We assumed that the organ and the harp and anything else would be just fine. But if you look at Amos, he says, I'm tired of the noise of the music you bring. Not that God doesn't like music or that he doesn't enter our praise. Here's the punchline. Let justice roll on 
like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Do you have any idea where this was written? It was written in a place in which there could be sometimes no rain for three years. Inhospitable desert climes with the hint of what used to be a river in a rock bed somewhere. But God is talking about waters. Not just waters, but waters that flow aplenty. Parching a very dry, I mean, uh, quenching the thirst of a very parched and dry earth. There is a crying thirst and need for justice and for right doing. Does this make any sort of parallel or sense in today's world? Is there a need in today's world for justice and right doing? Hello. I think so. Clearly. And the prophetic voice says, don't just let that happen, but make it like a stream that brings living waters, replenishes the ground and the earth, a a, a river that flows on and flows on, not these parched and dry and barren creek beds, not lip service to a God who loves us, only, but heart service and hand service. Doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly. Well, we're going to need to think about, I think, ourselves, what that looks like. Because most of us, if we examine our own lives, think, well, I'm honest with my employees. I give a faithful tithe. Um, I treat my children with as much dignity and respect as can be, and I've provided for my family in every way I know how. Um, I'm not dishonest in my business dealings. My prices are lined up with uh, my services. My whatever fees are lined up with what everybody else is doing. Or I'm an employee, and I, I take a fair wage. I don't cheat my boss. I put my time in. I don't really see where I fit into the equation. But we do. It's participation in systems of injustice. It's closing our mouths and our minds to the abuses of righteousness and justice. It's voting for our comfort and security and wealth on our terms and not thinking about the biblical mandate or call to a world in which the reign of God is made manifest. We think, here's our, our, uh, mine anyway, I'm so out of touch on the illustration point, I'm probably out of touch on this too. You're probably all lined up the right way and I'm just wasting my time this morning. But let me preach to myself and you can listen in. I think 
that what happens is that several things. I think, number one, I, I'm flooded with all of life's duties and activities, and being mindful of systems of injustice is just one too many things to do. Maybe you recognize that in yourself. I think that while I want to care sometimes, there's only so many things I can care about, and my plate of things to care about seems full enough, and so how can I care about yet one more thing? That, that feels like me too. I think sometimes I, I'm more interested in making sure that I'm delivering something that matters for myself or for my family or perhaps for my church or those kinds of things that I am worried about something larger than that sometimes. I think that I'm lazy on occasion and taking the time and effort to really understand what the term systems of injustice means. Taking time to explore the ways in which uh, the behavior of certain American companies, for example, in which I might want to invest for purposes of gain in the stock market. Um, those companies, their behavior, their attitudes, their practices, their way of being in the world might be utterly destructive to everything else I value. But it's a lot to be mindful of. It may be that I, I, I want a particular person to win a particular office because that particular person is of the right party and has the same view as I do on a particular issue. But I may not have taken the time to research and understand the way in which that individual participates in larger injustices in the course of making law and in the course of planning for the wealth of a nation and a global uh, sense of well-being. I think sometimes my life is narrowly focused in that my primary concerns are very close to home. And I've said that much already, but I'm reinforcing it because taking the energy and the perspective and the time to be uh, more global or even more national in my thinking systems of justice and injustice uh, seems to take something I'm not sure I always have. And maybe like some of you, I tell myself that being uh, a generally decent, good, generally honest, fair person is enough. It's after all, all I can do. And I think sometimes that I participate in a myth and the myth is that the kingdom of God is something that is yet to come. Any of you participate in that myth? It's the myth that says one day Jesus is coming back and he's going to make every wrong right and he's going to lift up the poor and oppressed and beat down the proud evildoers and he's going to set systems straight and he's going to reign as king and his government will be fair and his righteousness will endure and that'll be at that and the streets will be paved in gold and any idiot who digs them up to rebuild a sewer line will have to repave them perfectly. Sounds like heaven to me. I can't take 
forgot I can't take my jacket off with this uh, microphone. Does, do, do any of you hear yourselves in any of that? No? Okay, email me. Call me. <laughs> tell me about your, your actions in the world and how I can get on board and learn from you because I'm, I'm struggling. Uh, and you can help me out with that. Um, your silence is golden and I appreciate that. Just like the theater. Oh, you don't ever go. You've never seen that silence is golden thing, have you? I'm working on it. Seriously. I sometimes think it's an Adventist thing, but I, I really, in the end, don't. I think it's universal. We are waiting for a day in which things will be set straight rather, rather than participating in processes and plans and actions that will someday make much more manifest the kingdom of God irrespective of the timing of the second coming. In other words, we view our job as to stand from a mountaintop and say the world is going to end and expect people to move to the mountaintop to join in that cry. But it appears from the prophetic voice of Scripture that the call instead is to enter systems and places of injustice and do what we can to bring the light of God and the reign of God and the purposes of God and the righteousness of God and the justice of God into those systems as Christian people living in a real world. That's what it seems to me the prophetic call is all about. I would love... This I am serious about. Yeah, I was serious about the other part too. Tell me what you do and what you read and where you go and so forth and I'll try to work on illustrations that you can relate to because I just cited a television show that I'm the only one who's seen it. I guess none of you have direct TV or cable? Come on, tell me. How many of you have direct TV and cable? Okay, so you pay 80 bucks but you don't have the time to watch it. We need to have a financial seminar on how to... No, I'm kidding. What I would love to hear from you on, now I'm going to lose my train of thought. What I would love to hear from you on is your thoughts on how you can enter systems of justice or injustice. And more specifically, I would love for you to send me a list of 10 modern prophets. They can be Adventist. They can be Christian from other denominations or they can be figures, public figures in the world front today. Some of you are looking at me with crisscrossed eyebrows. What? And here's what I'm getting at today. You say to me, but pastor, there are no living prophets. Don't you know there's the Old Testament, there's the Apostles and the New Testament, and the visions of John, and then there is a black hole until about 1843, or a little earlier, when a young woman in Massachusetts began to have visions. 
and died in 1915 having written volumes that would affect the church dramatically for decades to come. Don't you know Ellen White was the prophet for the last day? Don't you know that she's the last of the prophets, you say to me? And I look you in the eye and I say, really? Was she? Was she? That view of history is remarkable because the Holy Spirit seems to have been active for a time way back when, and then Jesus is active for a period of time, and then his disciples seem to sort of piggyback on that and remember what Jesus said and seem to have some Holy Spirit stuff there too, and then it's just like nothing, zip, nada, for millennia. And then all of a sudden we get to uh, America and boom, a young woman becomes a prophetess. And a church is born, and we are consumed. Oh, I can feel myself walking on water. Jesus did it. It's an interesting feeling. Unlike him, though, I can sink at any moment out on this water. So if I'm going to walk on it, I have to know that his hand is in mine. But I would challenge you today with Joel. I would challenge the view that says, don't you know, Amos, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, excuse me, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, where's Joel? Right before Amos. Joel, Amos, Joel 2, 28 and 29. The day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? What do we say the day of the Lord is? We often say that's the day of his coming, don't we? And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the survivors, the remnant whom the Lord calls. Boy, that's full of prophetic language, isn't it? Apocalyptic. Sun and moon and stars. Shaking of the heavens, shaking of the earth. Last days. If you listen to anybody who's an evangelist, whether you lived in 1940 or 1980 or 2010, you're living in the last days. The signs keep increasing and growing around us. But Joel promises something very interesting. In those days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all peoples, old men and young men, 
your sons and your daughters. I, I would submit to you that in every day, in every age, God has had his prophets. Did you know, well, maybe I can read it to you. I see the promised land was the speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave before he was assassinated. He had gone to the sanitation workers strike in Memphis, Tennessee. The union there was largely black. The terms of employment were inequitable. And he was speaking to the people. And he talked about an attack that had taken place on his life in which he was knifed in a diner by a woman. And the blade broke off. They took him to surgery and removed the blade and they found that it was just a very small distance from his aorta. And if he had sneezed, the action of the sneeze would have been sufficient enough for the knife blade to cut the aorta and he would have bled out and died. And now in Memphis, he is under threat. And here's what he says. Well, I don't know what will happen to me now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And he was assassinated. And you say to me, there are no living prophets and you're right, because we continue to kill them all. Just like in old days. Here's a king quote of interest. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and as a brother to the poor suffering of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak for the poor in America who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home and death and corruption in Vietnam. I speak as a citizen of the world for the world as it stands aghast at the path we have taken. I speak as an American to the leaders of my own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. And I read that, I thought, well, that sounds very contemporary. Wrong war, but very contemporary. 
Discrimination, here's another one, is a hellhound that gnaws at Negroes in every waking moment of their lives to remind them that the lie of their inferiority is accepted as truth in the society dominating them. Who is society dominating today? Who do we look at as inferior? And don't dismiss this immediately as no one. We're going to put you on the lie detector and put a camera on you and bring people in having researched and we're going to ask you in front of the world what your attitude or what your action or what your thinking has been. Power is at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. Let me read that one again. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. And that is written in 1967. Where do we go from here? Chaos or community. There's a person who dreamed, who saw the promised land, who wrote of justice and love and the will of God. It's a person who spoke for an oppressed peoples, not just singular group, but multiple peoples, who saw himself not just as a citizen of a state or a member of a church, but a citizen of a country and of a world, a child of God, a universal belonging. A prophet. A prophet. And there have been prophets in my lifetime. There have been prophets in our church spat upon, derided, ignored, run out, disciplined, disavowed, hated, scorned declared enemies of orthodoxy or enemies of the church. People who used their strength and their call and their conviction to write systems of injustice or to speak truth into a community that claims to long for it. Is that too harsh? Think about it. Because my call today is not to beat you up or me up, but to get us together thinking, where is the prophetic voice? What is it that God wants for the world? And I would submit to you, it's not any different than what he has wanted for the last 4,000 years and longer. What has he wanted? He called Abraham wise because Abraham was special. Is that what Romans says? No. He called Abraham because of what? He was faithful. That's part of it. But Romans argues he called him out of what? Grace. It was God's grace that called to Abraham. 
and made him a people and a nation, a nation that repeatedly turned on God and turned against God. And time and time again, God sent his servants, the prophets. Time and time again, they did outrageous things. I have a sermon I preach on an insane asylum in which we go visit the prophets of the Old Testament. They were nuts by our standards in need of serious psychiatric care. Do you know that Jeremiah sat in feces for a year in public so that people would understand he was visibly illustrating what was happening with the people of God in relationship to God and their actions? That's pretty graphic. It's pretty graphic. They did what they were called to do. They spoke truth. They spoke almost universally, which is why they've endured to this, the human condition in which we turn to God and turn away from God. We go to him and we go to our own. We make an attempt to go to his leading and his following and his righteousness, but in the end we rely sometimes on our own or worse. We pick up habits. We go to our idols. We go to our places of unbelief. And Jesus comes and he has apostles and a church and by the time you get to Paul not even 30 years later there are apostasies and false teachings and false prophets and people trying to damage the church and destroy the church. This is from within let alone from without. And the church will move through the ages always struggling with the same thing always finding a voice in a society that needs to hear the truth. We get to the Reformation and we move through and the voice continues. The prophetic voice speaks to a people and moves them. And I would submit to you today that the prophetic voice of God still speaks and can move us as a people to rivers of justice and streams of righteousness we can be a water in the name of God that cleanses and parches, a, a, I mean, quenches the thirst of a dry and parched land. We can be a voice that speaks to injustice. We can be a vote that doesn't just follow a pocketbook but asks a larger question of systems of injustice. We can be people who have, like Dr. King, seen the promised land and live life without fear of any man. He who would give up his life for the sake of Christ shall what? Keep it or gain it. And he who would protect his own life will forfeit it. The kingdom of God is here, it is now, it is among us. And the prophetic word is that which drives us to live that out in the fullest way that we can, speaking to and making a difference in the world of injustice in which we live. May God give us the vision, 
May God give us the courage. May God give us the determination. May God give us the strength to fulfill that. Amen.